If you have your Bibles, I hope that you're turning them to Nehemiah chapter 4. I was thinking this week about uh, Navy SEAL Hell Week. Uh, it's the, the week where they really just try to weed out all the weaklings. And they try to make you as tired as possible. And I thought one of the things they could do to make Navy SEAL Week even harder would be after they do the entire day's worth of work, they go back to sleep. But the twist is, is that they're giving a newborn baby when they come into the barracks. Because that would create some tough soldiers. Uh, I have never been so tired in my life as trying to take care and keep alive a newborn baby. And it is so frustrating because Blakely is so good when somebody else watches her. Like we go and see my mom and my mom's like, I'll give you guys some sleep. Or uh, even Jordan came over last week to give us some sleep. And when somebody else watches her, she's an angel. She only wakes up like twice. But when it's Taylor and I, she's like crying all night long. And I tried to explain to her that I have to preach today. And she did not care uh, as kids don't. So that was just my therapy. Uh, I had to get that out. That had nothing to do with the sermon. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 4 is, uh, is a text that is really important, and it's why we're going so slow through it. I'm not doing the whole chapter. Last week, we started the chapter, and what we saw was Nehemiah was beginning to rebuild the walls, which is what he was called to do, and he began to face conflict. He was mocked, as God's people are, when they attempt to do what God has called them to do. We serve a God who is mocked. We serve a Savior in Jesus who is mocked. So we ought to expect mocking to come our way as well. And this week, what we see is it's ratcheted up a little bit. Uh, the mocking turns into plotting. If you look at verse 7 uh, of chapter 4, it says, When Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodds heard... And by the way, the reason why all those names are important is because if you knew your map, which I assume that you don't, uh, of ancient Israel, you would know that all of these kind of kingdoms are all around the Israelite people. It's like a circle around them. They are completely surrounded by their enemies, and they are all united on this thing that they do not want God's people to succeed in rebuilding Jerusalem. So it says, When they heard that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing, and that the gaps were being closed... They became furious, or the old King James would say, more wroth. Uh, So they were mad at the beginning. They were insulting. And we're going to see here the insulting turns into plotting to destroy the Israelites. They do not want this to happen. Uh, And this is what happens when we progress in our faith. Whenever you are doing something good for God's sake, you are making positive moves, you are progressing, the gaps are being closed, so to speak. That is when you will face attack from the adversary. If you are not moving forward, if you are stagnant, if you are, uh, you know, going backwards in your Christian faith, then you ought not expect much from the adversary because there's not much of a threat to your life. But the moment you begin to try to do the right things, the moment you begin to try to do what God would have you to do, or as a church family, the moment we try to do what God would want us to do as a church community, that is the moment we ought to expect blowback. In fact, the more we are doing for the kingdom of God, the more we should expect. You know, I, I kind of used to think when I, when I thought about adversaries and, and things coming my way, especially in like the church planning journey, I always thought, you know, once we got to the next level or the next step, I would have, you know, less adversaries. I would have less things kind of going wrong in my life. But the opposite is true. The more you progress, the, the worse that the adversaries become, the worse that the problems become. Because Satan does not like us taking back the kingdom of darkness and turning it over to the kingdom of light. Amen. So we ought to expect enemies from all around surrounding us. And the more we're progressing, the more those enemies are going to come towards us. But what Nehemiah 4 does is it gives us encouragement because there are some things that we know that our enemies do not know. There are some, if you will, inside jokes between us and God that only we get that the enemies do not get. In fact, there's three of them. And that's what we're going to look at today. But first, I'm going to pray for us because I need prayer. I don't even know if what I'm saying is making sense right now. I don't even know if I'm dreaming right now. I might not even be here, but I'm going to pray Uh, And then God's going to do what God's going to do, and he's going to speak to you, uh, irregardless of 
the speaker. So, Father God, I need you. I need you every Sunday. I need you every time I try to say anything good. God, I, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know the things that you know. I'm just a man. I'm a young man. And yet I stand up here with authority telling people how to live their lives. And the way I'm able to do that is because it's not me speaking. I want to speak from your word. I want your word to speak to them. And anything that I say that is from Blake Farley, I pray that it would be washed away like the chaff in the wind. And anything that is true, God, I pray that it be highlighted in my, the, hear, the, the minds of my hearers. And God, I pray that if nothing else, just the reading of your word today would speak to somebody where they are. God, we love you and we praise you. Amen. It's a story I heard that I really liked uh, about Roger Moore. Roger Moore used to be James Bond before you know, Daniel Craig came in and was this super cool James Bond. Roger Moore was the first kind of cool James Bond that there was. And there's the story of Roger Moore when he's at the height of his James Bond fame uh, going to an airport. And he's at the airport and there's this young man with his grandpa. And the young man says, Grandpa, Grandpa. You know, he's like six or seven. That's James Bond. You know, he, he has no concept that there's actors. That's just James Bond to him. And his grandpa's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But it just so happened that uh, the airport convenience store was right there. And Roger Moore, as James Bond, was on the cover of Time magazine. And so his grandpa looks across and he's like, sure enough, that is James Bond. So his grandpa says, let's go get this magazine and we'll have James Bond sign that picture of him. So they go across and they buy the magazine. They go up to Roger Moore and uh, the grandpa says, uh, Mr. Bond, sir, uh, my grandson here would love to have your autograph. And Roger Moore was kind of, you know, in a hurry at all people around him. He said, yeah, sure, no problem. And so he signs the autograph and he gives it to the little boy. And the little boy looks at it and he's excited at first. But then all of a sudden he becomes very despaired. He's very sad and sorrowful. And his grandpa says, what's wrong, buddy? And he said, well, it's just that I thought that this was James Bond. But the autograph says Roger Moore. Who is Roger Moore? <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, the grandpa says, you're right. So they go back over to Roger Moore and they say, I- I'm sorry. Uh, my-, my grandson wanted an autograph from James Bond. And uh, Roger Moore took the little boy over to the side. And he said, come here, come in close. And it's just him and the little boy. And he said, of course I'm James Bond. But I can't have everybody knowing that. All my enemies would know. So I had to sign it Roger Moore. So every time you see me on news or in the TV and you see Roger Moore, just a secret between you and I, you know that that's really James Bond. That's a sweet moment that that kid had with Roger Moore. And, uh, and I always thought that was really cool. But when the little boy grew up, he was uh, working and Roger Moore was promoting a, another project way later in life. And uh, Roger Moore was coming back to do a Q&A to promote this new movie. And this guy was able to go to it. So he was there. And when the Q&A time came around, you know, he raised his hand and he said, yes, I was wondering if you remember this story. He told him the story that I just told him. And Roger Moore said, that's a great story, but I'm sorry, I do not remember it. And he's like, oh, well, that's disappointing. But afterwards, they had a, a photo shoot between uh, where you could come and take your picture with Roger Moore. And uh, this guy waited in line. He thought, well, he didn't remember, but at least I'll get a picture with him. Well, he gets all the way up, and he's about to take a picture with Roger Moore. And Roger Moore says, hang on one second. He says, of course I remember you. But I can't have my enemies knowing that. <laughs> I always thought that was so cool. And uh, that is what it's like being a Christian in a large sense. That the world doesn't fully understand what we understand. So a lot of the things we do seem alien to them, but we have this kind of inside joke with God. We know what God is doing. We know what God is up to. We know that when it looks like we're losing, we're actually about to win. Because this is the way that the kingdom of God works. It's an upside down kingdom. And in Nehemiah chapter 4, we see three things that are kind of like, you know, secrets between God and us that our enemies do not understand. The first of which, if you're taking notes, is our enemies' plans are destined to fail. 
Our enemy's plans are destined to fail. And the reason why is because they don't have God on their side. It doesn't matter how strong or how smart they are, their plans will fail. It doesn't matter how weak uh, or feeble that we are, our plans will succeed only because we have God on our side. Look at what it says in verses 8 and 9. They, being all the enemies, all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. These are all the most powerful people. They're all surrounded. They're all around Jerusalem. On paper, this is easy. You know, this should be no problem. Who's going to lose? Jerusalem is going to lose. But that's not the way it works. It says, we are going to plot together, come together and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion. And then it says, this is what the Israelites do. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard because of them day and night. What do they do? Well, they station a guard. They have their own plan. But what do they do? They pray first. See, because without God, our plans are destined to fail. Proverbs 16, 9 says, a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. James 4, 13 through 15 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live to do this or that. Because ultimately, it is God's will who will prevail. Our enemies may plot against us, but their plots will not prevail over God's plans. Uh, Psalm 127.1 says this, and if you're wondering why they prayed before they set a guard, it's because of what 127.1 says. It says, unless the Lord builds a house, it builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. See, you could set a guard all day long, but if God is not with you, your guard is going to fail. And you could set, you know, the worst guard in the world at the gate. And if God is with him, the city will be guarded. In fact, there's a kind of a powerful example of this that's picked up on the New Testament. And if you, if you read your Bibles, you can kind of pick up on these ironies uh, throughout the New Testament, if you know the Old Testament. And uh, there's this beautiful irony of, of guards, the most powerful guards trying to guard something and then failing. This, of course, comes at the end of the gospel story when Jesus Christ dies. Uh, he is crucified. He's taken off the cross. And all the Roman officials and the Israelite officials go, Whew, we got rid of that Jesus guy. He is dead. Because you know what always happens when a person who claimed to be the Messiah died? Their movement died with them. Well, obviously he wasn't the Messiah. He died. But they were worried that you know the followers might come and try to steal the bodies, which is kind of a joke because the followers were so cowardly. <laughs> they would have never done that. But they, they said, we can't let somebody come steal the bodies. So we see Matthew 27, 65 through 66. It says this. Take guards, Pilate told them. Go and make it as secure as you know how. This is the most powerful empire in the world. Going to make this as secure as they know how. They went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guards. But friends, God was not with them. So just a few verses later in Matthew chapter 28, what happens? There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. I love that. That's so cool. You know, the angel rolls back the stone and he's just chilling on it. Uh, that's just cool. Verse 3. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. See, they didn't know. They weren't in on the joke. They thought if we guarded it, it would be guarded. That's not the way it works in God's kingdom. What we as Christians know is if God is on our side, we cannot fail. And if God is not on their side, they cannot succeed no matter what it might look like. That's number one. Our enemy's plans are destined to fail. Number two is, friends, we live by faith, not by sight. 
This is another huge mistake the world often makes. And if we're not careful as Christians, we can make it too. Well, we cannot live by sight. What do we live by? We live by faith and trust in God. Look at this, verses 10 through 13. It says, in Judah. Now, Judah is, is the good people. That's the, the, what we would call the Christians, you know, the Israelites. They're supposed to know these truths. But look at what happens when we forget these truths. It leads to despair. It says, in Judah, it was said, the strength of the laborer fails since there is so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. And you can't really blame Judah, can you? Because sometimes in our own lives, it feels this way, doesn't it? If we're just going by what we see, it's never going to work out. There's too much rubble in this marriage. <laughs> you know, there's too much rubble in this thing that God has called us to do. We're never going to be able to overcome this. We have enemies around us at all places. This is never going to work out. And if you look just at what you see, friends, you will often find yourself discouraged and despaired. And if they looked further, they not only see that, but they also see their enemies around them. Verse 11, it says, And our enemies said, They won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived by, nearby, arrived, they said to us time and again, Everywhere you turn, they attack us. Even the Jews who are living in other places, they're supposed to come and encourage the Israelites rebuilding. And they're like, You guys, you have no chance. This thing is as rigged as an Alabama football game. You... <laughs> You are going to lose. I have to put a joke in for football fans every once in a while. How about those pokes? Never mind. Okay. They're living by what they see. But Nehemiah knows that we don't live by what we see. We live by faith. Verse 13. So I stationed the lowest people beyond the lowest sections of the wall. Not the lowest people. I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Nehemiah says, I'm not going to sit around and throw a pity party for myself. I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. We're going to put families together. We're going to give them swords and we're going to fight. Yeah, but Nehemiah, we're going to lose. No, we're not going to lose. How do you know, Nehemiah? Because I live by faith, not by sight. Now, to illustrate this, I want to go back to last week and talk about what I talked about last week, because that is a perfect example of what the world would say is foolish. If you're living by sight, you would never do what I said to do last week. And that is to endure the mocking and the insults of others and not to curse your enemies, but to bless them back. These words that Jesus says are absolutely amazing. And if you're just living by sight, it is foolish. Your enemies are going to destroy you. But we don't live by sight. We live by faith. Matthew 5, 44. It says, but I tell you, this is Jesus, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you're like, yeah, I'll pray. <laughs> I'll pray that, you know, that their life falls apart. I'll pray that the mortgage company comes and takes their home. And Jesus is like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. <laughs> you pray blessings over them. Bless those who curse you. Uh, that doesn't make sense by sight. But Jesus not only taught it, he lived it. Didn't he, friends? 1 Peter 2.23. When he was insulted, he did not return insult. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He didn't threaten. He didn't insult back. What did he do? He had faith in God, the one true judge. And this is what we are supposed to do as well. John Piper says this about this kind of crazy way of living. He says, this kind of response to abuse looks weak and beggarly and feeble and anemic and inept. At least it looks that way to those who thrive on pride and equate power with the best come back. See, this seems really, really weak if we are living solely by sight. We do not live by sight. We live by faith. As Christians, we are to be like farmers. You know how foolish farmers would look if we didn't know what farming was? 
You know, they take a seed and they put a seed in the ground and they do not see what is going on under the ground, but they come and they water this thing and they trust that something is happening under the ground that when harvest day comes, when judgment day comes for them, there will be a crop there for them. That's nuts. If you had like a city slicker come in, you know, they didn't know anything about farming and they're eating tofu and stuff. And they said, you know, what's this guy, this old redneck doing, putting a seed in the ground? <laughs> He's so silly. And I can just imagine a farmer, you know, most of the farmers I know, they wouldn't come back with a comeback. They'd kind of just smirk and let it play out. And uh, you can imagine the face of somebody who they see this little seed go under the ground. And after you've watered it for a while, it comes up into this huge crop that feeds his entire family. Well, this is what the gospel is. Well, we're trusting that God is doing something that we cannot see. So we come and we water as foolish as it looks. And we trust that God is doing something we cannot see. Uh, I love the story of the, uh, the guy who invented the helicopter. His name is Igar Sloroskai. Pretty cool name, if you ask me. Uh, if you've got Sky in your name and you're creating a helicopter, that's, you know, that's God's sovereignty right there. And uh, it, when he was 12 years old, his parents told him uh, that human flight was impossible. He was obsessed with it from the very beginning. But in his shop where he worked on his helicopters, he hung this uh, sign, this kind of saying that he looked at every day when he came into uh, the office, into the shop. It said this, uh, according to the recognized... Uh, aerotechnical test, the bumblebee cannot fly because of the shape and weight of his body in relation to the total wing area. The bumblebee does not know this, so he goes ahead and flies anyway. And I love that. That's how we as Christians are to look. Don't you realize how foolish it is to bless your enemies? Yeah, I know. But I'm going to go ahead and do it anyways because I live by faith. Don't you know how foolish it is to love your wife like Christ loved the church, to sacrifice for her even though she does not do the same for you, sir? Yes, I know it looks foolish, but I don't live by sight. I live by faith. Don't you know it's foolish to give away your money to the poor? Who gives away their money? That is so foolish. And you say, yes, I, I know it looks foolish to you, but I, I don't live by sight. I live by faith. This is something that we as Christians ought to know that our enemies do not know. So that was number two. We live by faith, not by sight. Finally, number three is that we know... In the end, God will not be mocked. We know that in the end, God will not be mocked. Now, if you were here last week, you think, wait a minute, preacher, you're contradicting yourself. The title of my sermon last week is The God Who Is Mocked. The title of the sermon this week, I believe, will be The God Who Is Not Mocked. So you say, wait a minute, is he mocked or is he not mocked? And the truth is, is it matters on what we are talking about and when we are talking about it. Right now, our God is mocked, but God will not be mocked in the future. There will come a day in which there are no mockers because God will prove himself true. And as Christians, this gives us great courage to walk forward, to know that, yes, we are mocked now, but we will not be mocked in the future. Because all of us have a choice, whether you're a Christian or not. And if you're not, I'm so glad you're here. But you can either be mocked now for the name of Christ or you will be mocked in the end. You can either do what the world would call crazy now or you could be a part of the crazy world later when Christ comes back. And everybody sees him for who he is, and every tongue confesses him as Lord. You know, it's, it's, it's the same as, I think we can understand this in God's physical realm. God is the, the ruler of the physical realm, just as he is of the spiritual realm. Uh, and we could say it just as simple, gravity will not be mocked. Now, I can mock gravity right now. I can say, those scientists are so dumb. Can you believe they believe in this kind of thing that you can't see that pulls us down to the earth? Gravity, there's no way that it exists. But if I jump off of a building, gravity will not be mocked. It doesn't matter how much I think I can fly, I will not fly because God's laws hold true. Uh, or a little bit closer to home, we can take our physical health. Uh, the, the laws of physical health will not be mocked. 
You know, I can mock people right now who live a healthy life, and I do because it makes me feel better about myself. You know, I see somebody drinking a green smoothie. I'm going to make fun of them. But in the end, it will probably be me who is mocked. Because, you know, if you eat too many calories and you're overweight for long enough, diabetes and premature death is going to catch up with you. It's just the law. You know, there, there is nothing to stop it because that is the way that God set up the world. Well, the same is true, friends, in the spiritual realm. We are headed towards an end. And in the end, God will not be mocked. They may mock us now. They may mock Christ now. But in the end, he will not be mocked. Psalms 2, 1 through 4 speaks of this. I read it at the beginning of the service because it really speaks to what's going on with the enemies. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The reason why people mock God is because they see him as constricting them. They miss it. It is so sad because Jesus comes not to restrict us, but to free us. But if we're not careful, we see Jesus as restricting us. So we plot against him. We plot against his people. But look at what happens in the end. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. In the end, God will be mocking you. You will not be mocking him. That is the way this thing will end. So now you get to decide, do I align myself with God and mocked now? Or do I not align myself with God and I am mocked later? That is the only two choices that we have. Now, you might say, why does God allow himself to be mocked? Why does he not settle it right now? I mean, I would like that. I really would. You know, wouldn't it be cool if God just showed up tomorrow and he was like, you know what? All you people who make fun of Christians, mm, be damned. You know, it's probably like, you know, my dark soul thinking that Uh, you guys are probably way more godly than me. And you're like, no, don't do that. Uh, but, But the truth is, sometimes I wonder, why does God allow himself to be mocked? Why don't we just wrap this whole thing up? Jesus, come on back, you know, Uh, but he doesn't do that. And the reason why is because of his kindness. And so if you are here today and you are a mocker of God, and I don't mean that in a bad way necessarily. I'm not saying you're an evil person, but you, know, you, you kind of agree with Jesus, but you're not really willing to let him be the Lord of your life. You know, you're going to do what you want to do, and the parts of Jesus you like, you're going to take those parts. I would warn you that the reason why you have breath in your lungs today, the reason why reality hasn't caught up with you yet is because God is being kind to you. Because God desires you to repent. He desires you to change your way. This is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. It says, Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Do you think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? You can't escape God's reality. Verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of His kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Friends, every time you hear the gospel preached that Jesus has made a way for you to follow him, to become a disciple of his, you have a choice. Do I believe it? And do I live like I believe it? Or do I deny it? And every time you deny it, you are hardening your own heart towards the gospel. Friends, I know that God loves you because you're here today. If you're here today and you're a mocker of God and you're here today, it's because God loves you. He's given you yet another chance in his kindness to go from being a mocker to being one who is willing to be mocked because of your love and your devotion to King Jesus. So we must not look at God's waiting as something that tells us God is not going to, in the end, not be mocked. No, that is not true at all. It is God's kindness as he awaits the day in which he comes back and ultimately proves himself to be true. Galatians 6, 7 through 9, 
uh, gives us encouragement as Christians. And the band, if you guys want to go ahead and start making your way up, I'm going to close off here pretty quick. Galatians 6, 7 through 9, the Apostle Paul says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. We keep doing what is right. We trust that God will not be mocked in the end. This is exactly what Nehemiah does. Verses 14. Uh, In chapter 4, it says, After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the peoples, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, and your wives and homes. See, this theology of God not being mocked shouldn't lead us to not work. It should lead us to be people who do it with passion. We are going out there in a game that looks like we're about to get beat to smithereens in, and we do it with a smile on our face because we already know the end of the game. It's so exciting when I get to watch old Oklahoma State games where I know they won. Uh, because I know the end result. I don't have to be in you know, fear the whole time about what the end of the game is going to be. Well, friends, as Christians, we live this way. We ought to live this way. We already know the end of the game. It might look scary. It might look like we're losing. But we know the end of the game. And at the end of the game, God will not be mocked. And when we know this, it helps us endure the mocking and insults that come our way. Uh, Ray Comfort has an amazing illustration that I like to use when I think of this idea. And that is, you know, if you were on a a commercial airliner uh, flying and you had a parachute on and you were wearing that parachute as a fashion statement, you would eventually get tired of it because it's not a great fashion statement. You know, you put the parachute on, you're sitting in the seat, it's already cramped up, you have no room, everybody's pointing at you and laughing like, look at that, everybody's got a parachute on in the airplane. And, And so if you look at it just as a fashion statement, the insulting and the mocking will get you to take the parachute off. But let's say that it's not a fashion statement. The the flight attendant comes up to you before and says, hey, I'm not going to tell anybody else this because I only got one parachute, but the pilot told me that the engine's going to fail about 30 minutes into this flight. I can't get him to not go up in the air, so I want you to have this parachute. All of a sudden, you'd put that parachute on with pride, wouldn't you? You know, people laughing at you, insulting you. You'd say, I don't care. You know, it's uncomfortable, yes, but I do not care because in the end, I am going to be saved and you are going to perish without this parachute. Friends, that is what the gospel is supposed to do for us. That we know that if Jesus Christ was died and buried and yet he rose again and ascended and said he would come back and get us, we will not be mocked. And so sometimes we're like that person on the airplane with the parachute on. And it looks like we are the ones who are the object of mockery because the world doesn't live by faith, they live by sight. And yet we know, friends, that in the end, God will not be mocked. Let me close with this verse uh, again. It's Galatians 6, 7 through 10, but I want to read it from the message paraphrase. And then I'm going to pray for us and we're going to sing says, don't be misled. No one makes a fool of God. What a person plants, he will harvest. The person who plants selfishness, ignoring the needs of other, ignoring God, harvest a crop of weeds. All he'll have to show for his life is weeds. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvest a crop of real life, eternal life. So let's not allow ourselves to get fatigued doing good. At the right time, we will harvest a good crop if we don't give up or quit. Right now, therefore, every time we get the chance, let us work for the benefit of all, starting with the people closest to us in the community of faith. Father God, 
I pray that this message is encouraging to those who need to be encouraged. I pray that it would move people to do the things that they need to do. I pray for the one who is not a Christian, not a Christ follower, not a disciple, that they would see you for the first time today. And as a result of your kindness, they would repent and they would follow after you, willing to be mocked now so that in the end they would not be. God, I pray for the Christian today who's maybe growing weary and tired of doing good. Maybe they're like Judah and they see the rubble all around them. God, I pray that they would take their eyes off of their problems and put it squarely on the bigness of who you are. God, I pray that today, no matter who came in here or what they came in here wondering or what they came in here struggling with, they would leave here encouraged, not because of my words, but because of your words and because of how good you are. And friends, with your eyes closed, head bowed, take about 20 seconds and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father God, I pray that you'd give us the courage to obey what you've called us to do. Amen. Well, at Ascent, we don't do uh, what you would call altar calls, kind of like old school Baptist. And that's on purpose. There's nothing wrong with altar calls. But when we planted Ascent, one of the things we wanted to do was represent Jesus in a different way. And what I noticed was a lot uh, in, in kind of the Bible Belt and even in my own life, we were really good at making deciders. You know, you wanted to decide. You felt kind of a certain way during a sermon or a song played. Zach's got a beautiful angelic voice. Uh, And so sometimes you might be thinking that's the Holy Spirit. It's just Zach's beautiful voice. And so in that moment, what you do is you decide. You're a decider. But Jesus didn't want deciders. He wanted disciples. People who would throw off everything and follow after him. And so that's something we've been really intentional about is when I preach the gospel, I want you to respond to it with your life. Respond to it publicly by going forward in baptism and showing the world who you're united with. But I do from time to time feel led to say, if you want to talk about that with me, I would love for you to talk about that with me on any Sunday, but especially this Sunday. If you say, what does that look like to be a disciple? Please do not hesitate to come up and talk to me about that. The other reason why we haven't done altar calls is because oftentimes the gospel could become something that was just for people who were trying to avoid hell. It was at the end of the service. If you're already a Christian, it wasn't really for you. And that's just not true at all. The good news of Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and ascension is something I need as a Christian every single day of my life. I need the gospel more now than that moment I first believed. It was beautiful that moment I first believed, but I need it even more now. It is what sustains me and drives me. And so friends, I pray that as we leave this place, the gospel would stir in your heart and action to follow Jesus, to not just be a decider, but to be a disciple of Jesus Christ because we are a sent people serving the people amen we'll see you next week